Welcome back to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. I am your host Adam MacDonald and today I have on a really interesting guest, Dr. Eric Trexler. Eric is a researcher out of UNC Chapel Hill and for any basketball fans you'll know that's the home of Michael Jordan. He's a coach at Stronger by Science, a contributor for Mass which is monthly applications in strength sports and he's a pro natural bodybuilder. In this episode we talk about metabolic adaptations in both weight loss and weight gain how perceived results on paper may not match real-world results due to these adaptations, and also we cover the topic of how lean can someone realistically get, stay there, without any negative health effects or lifestyle consequences. It was a really insightful conversation for myself, and I feel this information is very, very useful for anyone who wants to understand what happens to your metabolism when we try to alter our body weight, whether that's up or down, gaining weight or losing weight. The timestamps are in the show description, and if you find this episode anyway useful, please do leave a rating or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really helps with the ranking of the podcast. You can reach out to me directly with any future topics or questions you have regarding this episode or any future episodes. My email is also in the show description or you can get me on my Instagram, which is adammac192. All right, Eric. So thanks so much, my man, for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So Eric, you're not only a doctor or a PhD, but you're also a natural bodybuilder, and, and that's one of the one of the kind of things that I really like about talking like people people like yourself. You're also in the trenches because sometimes you can get bodybuilders on one side who talk about evidence and research, and then on the other side you got re- researchers. But it's not that often that you come across the two people who actually are competitive, and you're a pro natural bodybuilder but also are in-depth and in the weeds and the, the research as well. So first question that I actually like to ask, specifically when I meet like tenured natural bodybuilders, so they could be pro or not pro, just people who've been in natural bodybuilding a long time is, why natural bodybuilding? Why do you do natural bodybuilding? Because it's, it's kind of strange, I guess, from the, the outside, you're stepping on stage, all tanned up, and then specifically, why natural bodybuilding and not, you know, open bodybuilding or non-drug-tested bodybuilding? What's your calling, or what's your reason why you do this? That's a good question. Um, so, as you mentioned, there's like a small group of people now that are doing bodybuilding and research on bodybuilding, and uh, it's cool that we need to have like an annual meeting uh, in the last few months I've worked on some projects with a handful of them so um, really good folks out there who are doing similar stuff uh, Peter Fitchin, Brandon Roberts, uh, Eric Helms, uh, Andrew Chapel over in the UK you know there, there's this group of people that that's doing really cool work um, and so the question is you know why why are you doing the bodybuilding along with the research and Honestly, I do bodybuilding because I think the human body is fascinating. Um, I think the physiology related to bodybuilding is remarkably interesting. And so I think one of the things that separates me from a lot of other bodybuilders, it's actually kind of funny. I I did a, a different podcast and there was like a Facebook thread and people actually said some kind of nasty things about me, but um, I have a really self-deprecating sense of humor, so I kind of was like, dude, I agree. Like, I, I think I'm the worst. But they kind of assumed that I was really narcissistic because they saw a bodybuilding picture of me, um, and it was like a general population Facebook group. 
And I think a lot of people think if you do bodybuilding, it's because you're self-absorbed and you think your body is fantastic and you can't wait to show it to people. And if that's why you do it, I mean, that's fine with me. I'm, I'm not worried about it. But the reason I do bodybuilding is because I think it's really cool what happens when you try to make muscles grow, what happens when you try to lose more body fat than your body would like to lose. I think some of the physiological responses and consequences of those processes are immensely fascinating. And so that's why I like to do it. And that's why I like to study it. Um, for me, there's really no separation between whether I'm competing, coaching, or researching the topic. These are just different ways of expressing the same interest in the general concept. Uh, so that's why I do bodybuilding. And it, it, counterintuitively, I actually think I look terrible when I compete because <laughs> it's like natural bodybuilding. The look that gets rewarded right now uh, competitively is not like the beach body. It's the like almost dead, detailed hamstring, striated glutes look. And so when I get into that kind of shape, I look awful. <laughs> like nobody's like, oh, wow, Eric, you're looking really handsome right now. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I do bodybuilding because I find it fascinating from a physiology perspective. Now, why natural bodybuilding? That's a really good question. And I'll be completely honest with my answer here. I think most people that get into bodybuilding at some point consider what if I did non-natural bodybuilding? What would that look like? What would the ramifications be? Because if you get into bodybuilding, theoretically, you're interested in being very muscular. And the drug route is certainly a very expeditious way to become very muscular. And so when I was in probably my late teens, I th thought about what would that look like? And what would that entail? And the reason I stayed natural was because when I thought about what it would look like to go the other route, uh, in America, there's legal risk. Uh, no matter where you are, there's, there's health risk involved. And so for me, I just didn't want to deal with the legal risks and the health risks associated with the use of anabolics. And I knew I wanted to compete. So it, <laughs> if you're going to be competitive and go the non-natural route, like a person my height I would have to gain like 70 pounds. So it, it's not like you can just kind of tiptoe into that world and be competitive. It, it Once you go that route, it has to be like your life at that point. And especially when I was actually considering, like actually thinking about that, that concept, back then, I don't know if, if men's physique even existed, if I'm being honest. I, I can't remember when that became a thing exactly, but... In any case, it certainly wasn't as prominent as it was today. So it was, it was the, the decision was literally, if you want to still compete in this stuff, you have to gain 70 pounds, you have to assume health risks, and you have to assume legal risks. And when I put all those together, I was like, eh, I think I'm just going to stay natural. <laughs> you know, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, but I will say, like, you know, I know there are people out there that go the other route that aren't natural. And, uh, as long as you're not competing against naturals, you know, and as long as you're informed of, of the health risks associated, I, I'm not one to really demonize people for, for doing that. Yeah, I think you touched on a, a good point there with uh, if you're competitive and you actually, you know, consider doing it, then you are going to have to put on a serious amount of mass. It's not like you're just going to 
do it for a little bit and then you're all of a sudden going to get huge you you generally genuinely have to you know commit to the cause and um you know that's probably one of the reasons why i chose not to do this because i have this i wouldn't say addictive personality but if i want to do something i really want to push and be the best and it starts to have those you know negative effects and more so in your health the, the bigger and the larger you get and it there's just a lot of complications with that so um yeah that's pretty interesting considering you you're you know you're interested in the whole kind of how the body works and the the physiology part of it and how you know what what happens to the body with you know building muscle and etc because obviously that's exacerbated with uh, you know with the use of steroids or anabolics yeah, I mean, you know, I was in a, during my PhD, I took a physiology class with uh, a nutrition professor. It was like nutritional biochemistry. And this nutrition professor, when we started the class, didn't know anything about bodybuilding, certainly didn't have an interest in it. But it was like every time we talked about a particular aspect of nutritional biochemistry or physiology... I would come up to her after class and have some kind of anecdote of like an absolutely disastrous instance of a bodybuilder trying to exploit that and either failing or something absolutely terrible happening and not not to make light of it but this stuff is fascinating like here's how the the here's how the physiology works here's how people tried to exploit it and here is uh, the result or the ramifications of that. And so by the end of the semester, she was like a very intimidating professor. Most people were like very scared of her. Uh, she and I were like best buddies. And, and I, I think I developed like, I, I helped her develop a morbid curiosity in the kind of enhanced bodybuilding world and all the different channels of physiology that, that they've tried to exploit um, either unsuccessfully or disastrously. And, and then obviously, in some cases, it actually works <laughs> pretty well. But, um, but no, so I mean, from someone who's interested in the physiology, when I first started following bodybuilding as a fan, it wasn't uh, natural bodybuilding. I was following the other guys because I was like, oh my God, look at, what, look at what's happening <laughs> to these bodies. Um, so no, I mean, like the enhanced side of things is still... Uh, intellectually fascinating um and I, I enjoy reading about it but you can't study it ethically uh or yeah. it's extremely difficult to study and uh personally like i said just the legal risk the health risk it's just not for me but but i you know absolutely it's still fascinating for sure yeah i completely uh, can know can agree with you on that one and, and i almost come from the exact same background i when I first got into it, I didn't know there was a natural thing as natural bodybuilding. I think I was maybe 16. And it, like most people, you don't realize that, you know, the drugs are involved until you're maybe a year or two in. Um, but even now, I'm, I'm still a pretty big fan of, of bodybuilding, but it's not necessarily natural bodybuilding. Like I do follow that, but I'm looking at the videos of the Mr. Olympia coming up and uh, the Arnold Classic. And, and that's what I'm really interested in because everybody wants to see the freaks and the guys who have the just insane genetics. I remember when I was like 18, I went to my first bodybuilding show and there was just amateur competitors here in Ireland. So they weren't even like, you know, that high level, I should say. 
and I was just amazed at how big a human being could be like just because I'd only seen like average people like in the gym you know people who are maybe a little bit muscular but then at that one show it was just like um it was towards the end or I think it was just the end of Ronnie Coleman's career competitive career maybe one year afterwards and he was doing a guest posing so I got to meet him in the flesh like for my first time meeting a pro bodybuilder and oh I was my like god yeah when I was 18 I was like holy crap his veins are like the same size as my fingers that is insane I was like it just the the amount of attention and I don't know uh, commandment that these people draw towards them when they walk into a room obviously if like kind of a room of fanboys I guess kind of like a celebrity but I was just I just had this feeling about where well, that's a really kind of dominant um, you know awe-inspiring figure and, and that's kind of why I fell in love with to an extent and then you know like you mentioned all the different reasons why you you chose not to you know do the non-natural route and um and a kind of the, the cost benefit reward and like you said people do think about it you say when pe- people think like oh just because I'm natural I'm really against steroids I mean I'm not it's just a choice that I don't I choose not to make and and everybody thinks about it like even if you choose like you're really against it you still have thought about it you just thought not to do it yeah for some people the thought process takes longer and is more difficult but everybody thinks about it you either reject it immediately or you reject it after a couple days of thinking about it or yeah you know there's a wide spectrum of how you react to that thought but I, I think the thought enters everybody's mind at some point yeah so to get onto the area specifically of this podcast and i know you've recently become a, a coach full-time with stronger by science you're a an, an online physique coach a strength coach but before that you'd spent a number of years studying or sorry researching should i say after you've done your phd and one of the areas that you focused on which is pretty cool uh, and one of the reasons why i invited you on here today was that you're looking at uh, research in bodybuilding or the bodybuilding community which isn't really something that that's common like you mentioned that it is uh you know coming on a bit more and that we do have that group of like eric helms and peter fishing and a few other guys as well i guess because the money's not really there and you know you know who's going to fund this but some of the, the areas that you looked at were um metabolic adaptation so the metabolism and how that's affected by in dieting and and training and and mainly in a calorie deficit or specifically around contest prep but do you want to give a kind of quick overview of of your research behind there and the kind of what you found that was maybe new or, or groundbreaking yeah so um during my phd there was kind of a series of studies that i was involved with uh looking at this general concept and right before i started my master's degree my graduate work uh I did a contest prep and it was the first time I had gotten like really lean. Uh, you know, my, my very first ever prep, I got lean enough to like win the novice division, but not really, really lean. So uh, I entered grad school like a week after my first legitimate, like super lean contest prep. And I was like, what the hell just happened? Like that was crazy. And so I became interested in trying to figure out it's not like I was the only person. I mean, there was a lot of people who were, who were kind of drawing attention to what's actually happening when people are getting in this kind of shape and what happens after that. Um, because the transition from diet to post-competition is, is quite a jarring transition. And so the, the first project was a review paper. 
and uh, actually Lane Norton was a co-author on that. He was super helpful in the process. And so the review paper came out in 2014, and we were just looking at the evidence out there um, of, of what could be explaining the different physiological changes that competitors go through throughout contest prep. And then uh, over the next couple years, we ran a couple of case studies um, looking at individual bodybuilders, tracking a number of parameters throughout their contest preparation, and usually for at least a month or two after preparation to try to look at that post-competition window. And we also did a small study with Bill Campbell down at the University of South Florida. Uh, Bill is awesome. Can't say enough good things about Bill. Uh, But we did a little study looking at a small group of competitors, specifically in that like four to six week window after their final competition of the season. And to, to, you know, it's kind of a whole line of research that um, it was not my dissertation work, but it was like my, my passion project that I kept on the side was just doing these, these different case studies and small studies. And generally what we found to kind of put it all in a brief summary is when you lose weight for a competition, Anytime you lose weight, you would expect that your total energy expenditure is going to go down. You know, you spend energy to keep your tissues alive and functioning. And when you have less tissues because you lost weight, your energy expenditure is going to drop. But what we find in physique athletes and bodybuilders is it drops more than you would anticipate. And so that's something that should be accounted for. And it's something that should be planned for when you're, when you're kind of going into a contest prep. In the post-competition window, we generally find that a lot of these changes in energy expenditure and unfavorable changes in a variety of hormones, they do seem to be reversed, which is good, a good thing. But what we also see is in that immediate post-competition period, um, the weight that gets gained immediately after competitions tends to almost exclusively be fat tissue. And so one of the things I'm interested in figuring out moving forward, because I am still working on some projects in this area, moving forward, I would like to try to figure out in that post-competition period, how can we maximize recovery of energy expenditure of hormone levels while hopefully minimizing the proportion of weight that is regained as fat. Um, I think right now it would appear that the people who regain a lot of fat very quickly seem to generally recover very quickly. Um, But the best of both worlds would be if we could control that weight regain process and manage it better so that there's a higher proportion of lean mass regain but still plenty of recovery when it comes to energy expenditure and hormone levels. So, you know, right now, I I think we've done a good job in the research of documenting what happens during prep. I think moving forward, we need to try to start figuring out strategies to attenuate those unfavorable changes throughout prep and and hopefully figure out how to manage that post-competition period in a way that's going to be optimal for long-term success in the sport and for long-term health. 
so yeah so basically what you're saying in summary is that you want to see how lean people could stay whilst not feeling like crap anymore so it would start to feel normal but not just getting fat and that would be the ideal scenario for most people but in reality that's that's not really the case for most people i think there's probably a lot that comes into it people when they they gain weight post contest or post diet even and and maybe not per se that they're gaining so fast so they can recover but just some of the psychological effects of the diet itself that even on even if on paper you did figure it out it would probably be hard for a lot of people to to maintain this kind of maybe slowly incremental weight in in gain or gain yeah gaining absolutely weight. yeah so i mean i i think most i don't want to overgeneralize, but i think most people that have done a contest prep and tried to do a very controlled refeeding period after um, so you could call it a reverse diet or a recovery diet if you'd like. But the more controlled and strict you try to be with that reverse diet process, I think a lot of people notice that that is actually psychologically a lot more difficult than the prep was. At least I, I, I've noticed that myself. I can prep all day and it's fine. But trying to do a very slow and strict and controlled reverse diet seems to be a remarkably challenging thing to do and I also don't think it's necessarily advisable when people take it to an extreme so you know th there's there's a lot of debate like re recovery diet versus reverse diet and the the general premise of the debate is how lean should you try to stay and for how long and I think Eric Helms does a really nice job of trying to emphasize how critical it is to actually prioritize recovery and not not try to stay in contest shape for months on end and, and, you know unless you have an extended season and you've planned ahead for that um, you know the idea that when you're done competing for the season that you're just going to add you know minimal amounts of calories over like a nine month period like I, I don't think based on what we know currently, I don't think that's a, a particularly advisable strategy. Yeah, and I think I completely agree with you in terms of you finding it difficult. And it's pretty funny the way that you've kind of got into this. I'm in the exact same situation that you are now, so or you were when you were doing your grad studies or your master's. I'm, I'm in the depths of a contest prep in between shows. I've got a show next week, but I also have potentially a show in uh, November. That would be the, the Worlds, if, if I choose to compete at that or not. Um, but also, I'm starting a Masters in like nine days after my, my show next week. So, and that will be my, my first Masters. And I, I, But the thing is, I've kind of know what to expect when I post-show because I've competed twice before. And, um, you know, and this is, like you said, like you ex explained for yourself, this is the leanest that I've ever been. The last time I competed, I was 10 pounds heavier and it was three years ago. So it's going to be interesting and it's going to be interesting to see if I'm actually able to, to, to do the further show in November after like two months of, of, uh, of college. And also, um, you know, just the general feeling of post contest or just extended dieting period. But I think one thing that a lot of people they want to do or 
their goal is, I guess, even if they're not, say, necessarily going to compete, is they're like, okay, I'm going to get to this really lean level of body fat and whatever that might be in their head, but usually it's like abs or something like that. And then they'll say, then I'm going to maintain that. And maybe one thing that they don't realize is that, yes, they can get there even if it's difficult because you have the goal. You have the goal that you're working towards and the suffering and the sacrifices are, are you know, they're there, but it's easier to stick to it and persevere when you have that light at the end of the tunnel but then when you're trying to do like a, a maintenance or maintain levels of leanness even though people really like to do it psychologically it just becomes so much more difficult but from a physiological aspect some just general health in, in, in just you know metabolic health and just hormones etc how lean do you think somebody can actually stay and is there a possibility i know we didn't talk too much about you know adaptations and metabolism just yet but is there a possibility that can, people can get their metabolism back up to normal while still maintaining some level of leanness that they weren't at previous? Or does your metabolism closely tie in with, say, your, your body fat levels and your body fat set point range? So that kind of range of body fat that your body just likes to naturally hang around. So that's a good question. And I, I don't know if I can answer it without speculating. So I'm going to go a little bit out on a limb and speculate some. So I do believe that you can get your energy expenditure to a higher level while maintaining leanness. Um, you know, I've definitely seen anecdotes of people I trust that have, have done that. They've gotten down to, con you know, a particular level of body fat very slowly reverse dieted and they seem to be maintaining that leanness on much higher calories and I feel like I've seen too many anecdotes of that from people I trust to dismiss them what I would expect is happening and I could be wrong on this what I would expect is happening is that you know non-exercise energy expenditure is this kind of catch-all term that describes the energy that you expend beyond resting levels that is not attributable to exercise or the thermic effect of food. I guess in this case we could tie the thermic effect of food in. But what I would speculate is happening is as they're slowly increasing their caloric intake, their body, and more specifically their hypothalamus, is probably nudging their total energy expenditure upward. And the, the, the specific manifestation of that would be an increase in non-exercise expenditure, along with a small increase in the thermic effect of food, because now you're eating slightly more food. And so the idea is that as you're slowly bumping calories up, you're also slowly adjusting your ener energy expenditure upward in a completely subconscious manner. And so what I think is happening is those two aspects of the inner, you know, calories in, calories out equation, I think that they are moving in tandem uh, upward so that the overall energy balance is largely unaffected because as the caloric intake goes up, the energy expenditure also goes up in a proportional manner. And, and what you'll see with these people who have pulled it off and they're like, yeah, it's it's been six months since my show, I'm still as lean, I'm eating, 
you know, a few hundred more calories per day and maintaining, what you find is in most cases, they still haven't recovered. Their hormones are still low. Um, like they still feel like crap. <laughs> they, a, a lot of the kind of side effects that we associate with the endocrine changes that come with um, contest preparation, that, that the, the restoration of, of those hormones and the mitigation of those side effects seems to be quite delayed. And so I don't think they're actually cheating the system. I, I think, you know, people will see that on Instagram and say, oh my God, they've been maintaining contest shape for this long and now they're eating more. And they think it's awesome, but like, you'll see this with, you know, some bodybuilders maintain are, are able to get in shape eating 1400 calories. Others can get in shape eating 1800 calories. But if they're both getting equally lean, they're going to feel approximately equally terrible when they're in shape. Uh, and I'm exaggerating. It's not that bad, but it, it's not pleasant to be in, in contest shape. So, um, so yeah, I, I think that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I, I think that can occur, but I don't think it's quite as cool as people think. I, I don't I don't think it's like, you know, a weird hack where you're like cheating the system. And an, another part of your question was how lean can people get? Um, I, I think it was like how lean can people get and kind of hope to maintain it? Is that? Yeah, so, so I mean, you, you touched on the point where just there, where like, yeah, you can walk your calories back up, but essentially you're still going to feel like crap. So it, the only difference is you're going to be eating some extra rice, but you're still going to be feeling pretty crappy. And you might even still be hungry because your mm -hmm. body fat's so low. You and will I, be. I, yeah, and, and I guess that's just the, the opposite effect of what's happening when you diet is that the need goes down. So you, you should say, well, I should be losing weight because your need is going down which makes up the you know a grand majority of your actual metabolism or the energy the, the energy output or the energy balance equation that you know when you say we should be losing weight but i'm not losing weight because i'm eating x amount of calories it's just the opposite effect but on the way up so you'll just start to move more you'll just burn more calories but because of body fat levels and you know leptin levels and your, your hormone levels you're still going to be feeling like crap so then i guess on top of that question would be then okay let's say regardless of food intake and let's say we can walk food up so you're not just eating like a, a rabbit how lean do you think somebody can maintain but also but not feel like death or not i won't say death i would say just not feel like low energy low libido like just feel normal again do you think that people really do have to come back up to that normal level of body fat and maintaining a six pack or, or cover model kind of look where it's not shredded but you know fairly lean is is probably not possible you know unless you know unless you're you know having some assistance with um you know some drugs or else you're actually just you know you're sacrificing health or just general sense of well-being yeah I, I, so i think uh it certainly is going to vary from person to person I, th I think some people are able to maintain a lean physique better than others uh, in terms of the hormonal ramifications of being that lean. Uh, but I think um, the encouraging thing is I think you can get pretty lean and maintain it. And when I say pretty lean, I'm talking, I think there's a lot of people out there that can pretty comfortably maintain at, you know, 9, 
10, 11% body fat. And I think there's some people that are actually pretty okay, even down at like the eight-ish level, um, depending on their, their, you know, their physiology, their eating environment. Like some people are, are that are just like really into fitness and they don't view it as a huge burden. I think there are some people that can maintain kind of at the higher end of single digit or lower end of double digit body fat. And I think for most people, that's a pretty, a pretty, um, visually appealing physique. Like if you, if you're maintaining at that level, certainly your, your metabolic health will be in pretty good shape, uh, generally speaking in terms of like chronic disease risk. So it's, it's a healthy body fat, assuming that you don't have huge drop-offs in, in, in all these hormones that we've talked about, which I think most people won't get to that level if they're at like 9% body fat. Um, you know, I remember back in the day, it was pretty, pretty manageable for me to maintain when I was like probably 18. Yeah, 17, 18 years old. It was pretty manageable for me to maintain kind of like probably nine or 10% body fat. It wasn't wasn't too bad. I was expending a lot of energy because I was really active. And it was fine. Like I, I didn't have any endocrine uh, consequences of trying to maintain there. But I do think it varies from person to person. I, I'd say uh, another thing to keep in mind is that if you're starting in a, a, a state of relatively high adiposity, so if you have a, a great deal of excess body fat to lose, w- what you'll find is that as you go from being like Uh, you know, in the more like obese body composition category, as you start approaching normal weight, um, and again, I'm just using these clinical terms. So please don't, if you're listening, don't think I'm using obesity as a pejorative and, you know, norm, normal has a lot of, uh, uh, it's kind of an emotionally charged word. So I'm just using the kind of clinical terms, but as you start transitioning from that obese body composition category to more of a normal weight category, um, you actually see the inverse, like you'll, you'll see, um, a positive change in endocrine levels. You'll see, you'll, you'll generally feel much better in a lot of, in a lot of cases. So I think everybody's got a sweet spot of body composition where they feel plenty of energy, you know, their sex hormones are in, in good working order and everything's in balance and they're, they're doing all right. And then I think when you perturb that, in either direction, that's where you start to see some consequences. And I think most people, when you start getting down, you know, some people, if they get to like 9% body fat, they're going to feel it. No doubt about that. But I think everybody, just about everybody, when they start getting to like seven, six, five percent as a male, that, that's when you're like, all right, yeah, just about everybody down there is going to be feeling that stuff. Yeah, we talked about, uh, I talked about this with, um, Dr. Carl Nadalski a couple of weeks back, uh, he's an obesity doctor and works with people who are you know obese, not just obese people, but a lot of obese people who are trying to get their, their weight down. And he's, he's mirrored the exact same thing, you know, that when you're getting too fat or adding too much body fat, you actually start to see some negative hormone consequences. And then, of course, he's actually competed as well once and that 
and this isn't really most people probably won't ever get to the point where it starts to really negatively affect their hormones in terms of leanness because it just gets so hard um but it starts to have the similar effects the, the leaner you get as well in terms of your testosterone and, and leptin levels etc yeah and i actually I, i'm glad you brought carl up because he um mike israel shared an article i wrote about this topic and Carl commented on it and said, this stuff is good, but, you know, don't forget that we also see issues at higher body fat ranges when it comes to these hormones. And uh, I actually really appreciated that Carl um, mentioned that. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I totally agree. That's just not who I wrote the article for. You know, the article was like, if you're going from normal weight to super lean, what to expect. But it's an important thing to note. So ever since he kind of said, hey, some people might misinterpret this, um, you should probably mention this. Ever since he said that, I've been a lot more conscious about pointing out that end of the spectrum as well. Um, And one thing I would, a little caveat, you mentioned like a lot of people won't get lean enough to really see this stuff happening. That's probably true, but a lot of the stuff can also happen to some extent from just short-term energy restriction if it's extreme enough. So a lot of people will get to the point where they feel like crap because over the last three weeks, they've been doing some really extreme restriction. So, you know, very few people are going to be getting down to five or 6% body fat, but a lot of people are going to be having acute reductions in sex hormone levels, leptin levels, and they're going to feel like absolute crap because they've done really extreme short-term restriction. So would you say that somebody who, let's say, took a longer contest prep or just a longer extended dieting period and got very, very lean, they started to have these adaptations to uh, to calorie deficit and just being so lean, somebody who a person b who just wasn't necessarily as lean but just did an extreme diet let's say they just could slash calories by half or more they would feel similar enough to the person who was extremely lean is that what you're saying um i don't know if that's what i'm saying (laughs) so it's 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 really difficult because when we look at these long term like the people who do take the gradual approach certainly some aspect of their adaptation pertains to the acute energy deficit and some some magnitude of that uh of those effects is more related to the more chronic reduction of body fat and uh so so they're slightly they're related responses it's hard to untangle them in a person who's doing both but i i think what i would feel comfortable saying is the, the types of things that are affected by getting lean over time, so those changes in leptin, changes in testosterone and cortisol and the ratio between them, hunger, energy expenditure, subjective energy level, we see those same changes when a less lean person starts doing really extreme restriction. So, but I, I don't know if I can... I don't know if I can generalize to a, a spot where I say which which is, you know, is that short-term restriction feeling exactly as bad as getting yeah, the 5% it, body fat? I, I, I don't know if I can do that. Say, yeah. yeah, Yeah. no, but, but I, I actually kind of, now that you mention it, 
when I do have like a refeed day or just eat extra calories, even though my body fat's not like significantly increasing or probably not at all on that day, I do feel quite significantly better. So you, you, you did make a good point there to say that it's not just the body fat levels, but the acute calorie deficit. So most people that are extremely lean are also in a calorie deficit as well, simply just due to the fact that nobody really wants to maintain super lean levels of body fat. Yeah, and, and, and so what you'll see, like you were mentioning, is when you're very, very lean, but you have a brief caloric surplus, it makes things, you know, if you're at maintenance or, or certainly in a surplus, it makes things less bad in the short term. Um, but as well, as you see with people who do the extended reverse dieting thing, just going to maintenance and staying there and, and being really lean, it, it's not going to completely reverse. It's like being super lean in a surplus feels a lot better than being super lean in a deficit, but the surplus isn't going to get you back to like, oh yeah, I totally feel myself and all that stuff is not a problem anymore. Yeah, I completely gotcha. And that comes back to the point i guess then when we're talking about super lean levels of body fat being you know having negative effects on your your physiology but also extreme levels of body fat so i guess what the point is that it's probably not a good idea to go either you know to stay within that range so if you're let's say you're bulking right you're adding lean mass it's probably a good idea at some point to say okay i'm probably i probably got enough body fat on me here where at a certain point i'm pushing towards you know almost like a levels of obesity and I'm, it's not just like overnight it's just like okay you're obese now so you have all these adaptations and i'm sure it comes on slowly so it's probably a point where if you want to actually maximize your hormones for let's say body composition and muscle building you probably don't probably don't want to get too lean but you probably don't want to get too overweight or too fat either so it's tricky um in terms of general health certainly you'd want to stay within that middle range. Like if your only goal was feeling good and living a long, happy, healthy life, you'd want to stay in the middle of that range. Now, I have heard some people use this concept and misapply it. And what they what they say is when we start to get really obese, the testosterone and estrogen to estrogen ratio seems to drop. And so people have applied that and said, well, if you're obese, you need to get lean enough to correct that and then begin bulking. Like that, that's going to allow you to increase your lean mass. And if you're in that obese state with that less favorable testosterone to estrogen ratio, uh, it's going to impair your ability to gain lean mass. While I understand why that's an appealing theory, it breaks down when you start observing the world around you. And what I mean by that is if I were to, if I were to select, you know, a, a group of the people with the most lean mass, the most muscle mass walking this planet, they're probably going to be natural, by the way, <laughs> just to put that caveat. Yeah. Um, we don't like the, uh, the non-natural bodybuilders on this show. Well, <laughs> it, it just, whenever you talk physiology, it just throws a wrench in everything. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, no, I'm, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So if I were to pick the people who have the most lean, you know, lean mass and the most muscle tissue, it's going to be probably sumo wrestlers and defensive linemen in American football. 
And what you're going to find with all of them is that their body fat level is high, um, pretty high. And so w- w- the, your observations of the world around you are still important, even if you don't have like a PubMed link for it. And so like, if you're going to tell me that having high body fat is going to impair my ability to gain skeletal muscle, that just breaks down so hard when you look at the instances of like the highest documented fat-free mass indices of people who can realistically be presumed to be natural. They come from people with high body fat. But could you say, I guess when I'm thinking of it, just from a different lens, that these people who are linebackers or sumo wrestlers, when you think, like if you just think of one of those in your head, these guys have probably never done a cut in their life. They just consistently bulked for the, their whole life. They're just trying to pack on as much mass as possible. And that could also, and I'm just you know throwing that out there, that could also be a reason why they have so much mass is because they've been in a calorie surplus for 10 years or, or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, certainly, yeah, these guys are on a 25-year permanent bulk. <laughs> and that, that, that is why they have so much lean muscle or I'm sorry, lean muscle is a, a dumb term, but that's why they have so much lean mass and skeletal muscle tissue. But um, to, to me, like the idea that, sorry, you're obese, so now you're going to have an impaired muscle building response to training. I struggle to see how that effect would be large enough to care about when everyone I see in the sporting world who happens to be enormous also happens to have a very high level of body fat. Gotcha. So even if it may exist it's not big enough to necessarily worry about it per se with the caveat though if you are somebody who wants to be lean and wants to have like abs or wants to be close to 10 percent body fat at some point you don't want to be getting above you know, the, the more the, the more adiposity your own body fat that you gain the more chance of you actually losing uh, muscle because you're just going to have to die for such a long period of time to get that additional body fat off but that's a different absolutely a diff, that's a different kind of argument rather than saying you know you're not doing it because of your hormones yeah and, and that, that's a good point you know if your goal at the end of at the end of this process is to be muscular and very lean you really should not be pushing your body fat too high because um, you're just digging a hole for yourself that you're going to have to fix later. So, um, yeah, my my thing on this is the kind of theoretical argument that people are impairing their muscle gains by being obese purely as a, you know, looking at that in isolation as a standalone concept. I struggle to believe that that effect is big enough to be particularly important. Um, but more practically speaking, you know, realistically, people are not like, you know what, I think I'm going to try to get up to about sumo wrestler size and then cut for a bodybuilding show. So it, it's one of those things that like, theoretically, that's my argument. But practically speaking, it's not super useful. Because most people have a couple goals. It, 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 and it, in terms of the people that I tend to talk with, about yeah, nutrition and training. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's too many sumo wrestlers who listen to this. Uh, probably not. Um, <laughs> but but like people that I talk to are usually interested in either having good general health or getting pretty damn lean eventually. 
And so for both of those cases, I would say, well, regardless of this kind of theoretical argument, you need to stay lean anyway. So it it kind of becomes a little bit useless to worry about because like if somebody's like, hey, um, I, I want to eventually be shredded and big, do I need to cut to fix my hormones so I can build muscle? I would say probably not, but you still probably ought to get closer to your eventual goal body weight anyway. Mm. So, so probably, yeah, so probably not, but probably. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like, well, I, I don't care if you cut now or later, but you're going to have to build some muscle and you're going to have to lose some body fat. But I don't yeah. think you're going to sabotage yourself if you focus on the muscle now and do the cut later. I don't think this small hormonal fluctuation of doing a cut now, then a bulk, then a cut, I don't think it's going to get you there any quicker. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha. So, Eric, I want to talk a little bit more about adaptations in metabolism, specifically when someone is dieting. So, what happens as we start to diet? So, what we kind of see is let's say somebody's eating 3,000 calories, or, you know, whether they're tracking or not, but they're maintaining and they plug in their calories needs into a calculator online and they'll produce by 500 calories or whatever and they expect to lose a pound or so a week and maybe they do for a week or two and then it just stops and they're like what's going on i'm added in cardio and my weight's not dropping anymore like oh my my metabolism is slowing down can you explain to us a little bit what is going on there yeah so when we talk about energy expenditure we're talking about your your resting metabolic rate or your basal metabolic rate There's a scientific distinction, but it's not worth caring about, practically speaking. There's your thermic effective feeding, which is just the calories you burn in the process of eating and metabolizing food. Your exercise activity thermogenesis, which is the calories you burn during exercise. And then there's your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that is all the other stuff you do. That's the energy you expend maintaining your posture, fidgeting in your chair, going to get the mail from the mailbox, uh, washing your dishes after a meal while standing. It's all that extra stuff. And so what we see is during uh, a weight loss attempt, uh, total energy expenditure, the sum of those things goes down. And some of that relates to the fact that as you lose body mass, you have less tissue to, to maintain energetically. And so that makes sense. And there's nothing you can do about that. But there's also an adaptive response. So the, the total drop in energy expenditure is larger than what you could attribute simply to the loss of, of mass. And what usually is the biggest uh, factor getting affected there is the non-exercise activity component. And that's probably mostly mediated by leptin changes and leptin is respond leptin is you know created by fat cells and it's used as kind of a long-term energy sensor in the brain just to keep an eye on how much fat we have and how much energy we can rely on if a famine happens to uh to start off today and leptin is also responsive to short-term energy availability so if we drastically slash calories especially calories from carbohydrate we see a short-term leptin drop as well. And so leptin is responsive to the acute energy deficit and the long-term loss of fat. Leptin from the blood goes to the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus is what basically regulates 
most of the stuff we care about. Like the hypothalamus has a huge impact on our eating behaviors, our feeding habits, our activity level. And so the, the hypothalamus is really the key structure of the brain that integrates all of our information about the energy inside and the energy outside. And so uh, a lot of times in response to this leptin drop, the hypothalamus gets the message that there's not enough energy to go around and it starts making some changes. And in that context, non-exercise activity drops, and there are also downstream effects on a variety of hormones. Um, if you get into hormone physiology, you'll notice that hormones generally are, um, not always, but a, a lot of them are, uh, they have a kind of a, a cascading loop that, that uh, regulates their production. Um, and for a lot of important hormones, the hypothalamus is kind of the first regulating structure that, that kind of helps regulate circulating levels of all these different hormones. So when you start messing with the hypothalamus, crazy things happen. And, and that's pretty much what's going on. So at a certain point, do you think that fat loss can stop or you know will this need come to zero or will we just continue like what can we do essentially to to go against this or to the fight against this drop in need and i actually really do resonate what you're saying right now everything just becomes more of a task and even though like my calories may be quite low right now for what i was eating not even that much heavier at a heavier body weight things just become more of a drag i even feel like i'm getting like neck pain simply because i don't think my posture is as upright as it was before so i'm starting to get like a little bit of neck pain and that's just like you said the drop in need or that's at least what i'm attributing it to but things like just cleaning the dishes like picking up your your coat when it's on the floor and just everything just becomes a, a task and more difficult it's like working out almost i i explained to some people that when you go shopping for presents around Christmas and you've just walked for hours and hours and you come home and like plop yourself on the sofa and you feel exhausted, you almost feel like that every day, but then you got to go train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do. And it's tricky because, um, you know, the, the, the first part of the question was, is the weight, is the fat loss ever going to stop? And it kind of depends. I mean, like, as we, you know, you probably do your diet in kind of a stepwise fashion where you make a diet change, eventually you reach a plateau, you make a new change. And so we hit plateaus all the time with weight loss. And what that means is, you know, based on our, uh, based on our energy expenditure and intake, we are no longer in a deficit. Some of that is because we've lost tissue and now we're a smaller person. Some of it might have to do with our training habits. Um, you know, the, the, the reduction in NEAT certainly can contribute to that. But the thing that I always remind people is that if you do happen to reach a plateau and these combination of factors put you at a spot where you're no longer losing weight and you're no longer able to achieve a deficit with your current nutritional intake, that's okay. We just, we just alter things. We, we either remove food or we increase cardio. I almost always recommend removing food over increasing cardio with some few exceptions, but 
I think people get a little cardio crazy on prep. But um, what, what I always remind people is this stuff with metabolic adaptation is important to be aware of for planning process uh, purposes. But uh, it's not like, oh, I caught the metabolic adaptation. Looks like my prep is over because fat loss is done. It's like, no, I mean, we can still keep nudging things in the right direction. We just might have to nudge things further than we wanted to. But everybody has a number at any given time that is going to help them achieve weight loss. Everybody uh, that is alive still. And when you're really, really lean and depleted, um, that number still exists, but you, you might just happen to die if you starve. <laughs> but like, you know, no one is immune to starvation. So, you know, you never hear about somebody who got stranded on like a desert island with no food and they came back fatter, you know? So like... Wait, there was <laughs> a guy in that uh, series lost. He just remained fat the whole time. I mean, it's possible that he has a remarkably thrifty metabolism. Um, yeah. but, but no, I mean, everybody's got a number at which they will, can, they will resume their fat loss. And if you're lean enough that that number becomes dangerous, you need to stop losing weight. <laughs> so like, yeah. But yeah, so a lot of times people view this as like, if I get metabolic adaptation, I'm screwed and my prep isn't going to work. And it's like, not really. You're just going to, you know, like for me, when I prep, um, for me to get really lean, I often have to get my cal my calories below 1500. Um, and so like what that looks like in practice is, you know, I really wish I could have gotten this lean on 1700 calories, but instead I had to do 15 and that yeah, was uncomfortable. That's but tough. that's, that that's the like worst case scenario here is ah oh, it turns out i had to cut a little more food than i than i wanted to yeah and that's really important that people hear that because unless you've experienced it yourself and you're going through a fat loss phase and maybe not even at the depths of like a contest prep but at some point you're going to have these adaptations that your metabolism hasn't come to a halt it just these things happen within our physiology that are fighting against us basically starving and we just have to, you know, push a little bit harder, more so than what a, a calculator might say on the internet. Yeah, and so one other thing that really derails people is, um, I know this sounds really cliche, but uh, fluid retention can really mess with people. So, like, there have been times during preps in the past for myself, because I do my own diet and training and stuff, where I know that fat loss has to be occurring and there's no there's no way it's not occurring because i know what i'm putting into my body i know how i'm training but the scale isn't moving and so like if i didn't have a a decent background in exercise nutrition physiology then I can empathize, like, if I didn't study this stuff, I would have been like, oh, crap, something's broken. Like, this is not working, and I'm in trouble. But in reality, what was happening was I was pushing the cardio too hard. I was training myself into the ground. I was re retaining a ton of fluid, largely due to cortisol levels going through the roof. And so I just took, like, three or four days off and immediately shed that, that fluid. Like, it was just gone in a matter of days. And so, lo and behold, absolutely, the fat loss was still occurring, 
because it had to have been based on my intake. Um, all that was happening was the fluid retention was masking that progress. And so I, I certainly understand why people will hear discussions about metabolic adaptation. They'll say, no, you don't understand. I was eating very little and my fat loss stalled. And a lot of times you have to say like, no, your, your fat loss continued, your weight loss stalled. Yeah, and I, if you more proactively manage that fluid retention, um, and that's not to like ascribe blame, like sometimes you, you start retaining fluid, you got to figure out why and you got to figure out what to do about it. But what, what they would find is actually their fat loss did in fact continue. Yeah, I, I hate to parrot you consistently, but about a month ago when I did my first show of this contest season, I was holding my weight at like 176 or 177 for like week, two weeks. And I was doing a, a ton of cardio, like a lot of steps. And I was eating fairly low calories, like you know, 1600 calories, 1700 calories. And my weight just wasn't dropping. And then I flew to America, um, you know, California, the weather here in Ireland is pretty pretty bad it's raining it's cold went to california was like essentially had a week's vacation went to the beach it was sunny and like dropped like three pounds like overnight essentially and and i maintained that then and it was like you said just probably fluid retention because i was actually losing fat that whole time it was just that i was stressed and i was stressed about not losing the water which is then ends up being like a you know a feedback loop from hell where you're like i'm stressed now and some more cortisol so i'm holding more water and then yeah, and, and it gets even worse if like people yeah. with a little bit less um, self-restraint, not only are they psychologically stressed about the fluid retention, but they, yeah. they don't recognize that it's fluid retention. So they do more cardio to start getting the scale to nudge in the right direction. And they exacerbate the problem <laughs> both psychologically and physiologically yeah well eric we're almost coming up on time but i've got one final question for you and this is a harder one to get answered like but maybe you can help is there a possibility that in the off season or let's say muscle building phase that we can let's say we've dieted for, you know you've done either extended dieting phase and you got fairly lean whatever that means for that person then you're like okay, i'm gonna have a really productive off season or building phase and i'm gonna maximize my metabolic capacity so that next time i diet I don't have to diet on the same amount of calories because it suffered and it sucked and I was eating like very little. Is that something that you can actually do? Can we maximize our metabolism in the off season? So we're eating a ton of calories so that now we can diet on 25%, 30% more calories to get to the same body weight as before? Or is it simply just all gonna always come down to the same calories all the time? I don't believe you can. I think, uh I'm like kind of speculating, but I phrased that really confidently. <laughs> but so my, the way I view it is your metabolic rate uh, exists within a range and you can suppress it or you can increase it beyond its normal level. But uh, so, so what I'm getting at is there are studies showing that if we intentionally overfeed people, a lot of times they will increase their total energy expenditure in response to that overfeeding. And it, it's basically like the opposite of all the stuff we've talked about. So their, their body almost like defends their body weight during overfeeding by increasing energy expenditure. 
Now, some people have a more robust response than others. And so what we see, and there's been really good studies looking at a large group of people, and they will overfeed all of them, and they'll say some of these people just gained weight. Like they just, you overfeed them, they gain weight. Other people, you overfeed them, and their energy expenditure goes through the roof to try to counteract that overfeeding, and they actually gain very minimal weight. And so when you see these stories of people who they're like, oh my God, my prep was horrible and my my food intake was like nothing. So I really took charge and I supercharged my metabolism and look at me now. I think what's happening is we're seeing that during the end of their prep, they are talking about a food intake that is probably... It was low because they weighed less and it was probably, you know, 10% lower than it should have been due to metabolic adaptation, you know, maybe just a little bit north of 10%. And then when they get into their bulked up stage, they gain some weight. So their energy expenditure is higher, but then they are also responding to the overfeeding. And that is a temporary transient adaptive increase in energy expenditure that could be like 10%. And so what we're looking at is just the inverse of metabolic adaptation, where because they are in an acute energy surplus, their their metabolic rate is just trying to accommodate that surplus. Um, And so I, I think what happens then is so like let's say I'm maintaining my my off season body comp at like 3200 calories. But 200 of those are just an adaptive increase in metabolic rate because I'm overfeeding. If I drop from 3,200 to 3,000, I don't start losing weight. I just lose that adaptive bump that I was getting from being in a surplus. Which essentially essentially that's probably just, you'll just get a reduction in neat non-exercise activity. Yeah. It'll just go down to where it should have been. Yeah. And so I think a lot of times people that believe they have like rebuilt their metabolism from ground up and kind of cracked this physiological code i think really what's happening is their their metabolism was suppressed so they they fixed that um and that's an easy fix you just start eating again and gaining some weight but they they basically reversed an unfavorable adaptation caused a, a very transient increase in caloric expenditure from overfeeding but what you see is that once you remove the overfeeding you were maintaining at 3,200, you drop it to 3,000, and there's no weight loss. And yeah. so it's like your, your metabolism wasn't functionally changed. It was, just, it was just responding to acute stimulation. Yeah, kind of like so, what so you're gonna end up, person, yeah. Yeah, so you're going to end up dieting on the same calories. If you manage the diet better, you might have less metabolic adaptation the second time through. So it doesn't mean you're going to have to diet on exactly the same calories the next time through. Like there's a lot of factors that will go into exactly how that next prep goes. But you have not made a long-lasting legitimate change to your body's metabolic rate. Yeah, you haven't sped up your metabolism. Just that's a non... It just just doesn't work. You just can't speed your metabolism up. You can fix it if if you're really, really lean. Well, you don't yeah, and, and you can acutely stimulate it to be higher. But, uh, but how, yeah. They're, they're, how, what, what way would you 
uh, acutely stimulated to be higher. So people would think, oh, if I can acutely stimulate to be higher, that means I can acutely increase fat loss. No, so uh, it's uh, the exact thing I'm talking about, which is just overeating. Oh, gotcha. So I mean, yeah. if you're, it, that's kind of he- what we see when people have like done ten thousand calorie challenges and they don't gain like two pounds of body fat. Obviously, just like glycogen, but also they probably just get a, a ton of energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, when, when you talk about like, the, I, I I would speculate that a lot of people who claim to be hard gainers, um, some of them just have. Uh, really tight appetite regulation, but some of them, I think, just are on the higher end of the spectrum of when you overfeed them, their total energy expenditure seems to become elevated more than others, and they just have more of an adaptive response to accommodate that overfeeding. So, so yeah, you, you, you can acutely do that, especially if you're on the more favorable end of that spectrum, but the second you remove that surplus you're back to normal yeah i think the way i kind of and it's probably a bit of an oversimplification but the way i try to explain to some people is you know, when you give kids those really sugary drinks and they just can't stop running around they're just hyper energetic it's kind of like that where they've just their neat has just gone through the roof because they've got so much carbs so much more calories coming in yeah the, the neat gets higher there's the the whole kind of like activation of the sympathetic nervous system um but yeah i mean you are there are physiological responses to overfeeding that are larger in some people than others um but that's pretty much what's going on when people are eating you know when it looks like they definitely have done something to meaningfully change the way their body expends energy um in in the resting state that's i i would speculate that that's really what we're observing yeah and and you can notice i think you mentioned in a previous uh, podcast somewhere that if somebody met you when you were like fully fed at a higher body fat percentage and then again six months later at the end of a contest prep it's like a completely different demeanor that you have as a person absolutely yeah yeah fat eric is a lot better to be around than lean eric that's for sure are you fat eric or lean eric right now i'm very fat eric right now so you must be really really nice (laughs) no i must be really really mean when i'm leaner yeah Yeah. this is about as this is about as pleasant as i get so um it's all downhill from here (laughs) so is there any final uh or is there any thoughts of competing again in the future or is it mainly focusing on coaching for now and and the the research still that you're doing um i'll definitely i I think i'll definitely compete again um so one of the things that's been really frustrating so my most recent prep was when i turned pro and then made my pro debut but i kind of did it on a whim i didn't plan to do it i just started losing weight because i felt kind of crappy and then the weight loss was going so well i was like well I'm basically halfway done with a prep, so I might as well just prep. Um, But then I had to finish my PhD, and then I had to get the ball rolling with all the stuff I'm doing with Stronger by Science and Mass. And so eventually I'd like to do it, but between all the academic stuff, the professional stuff, and a really annoying hip injury that I've been training around, um, it's been hard to set aside a good stretch of training to really put on some good lean mass um i'm really i was actually kind of in a bad mood today because 
I tried to hide it for the podcast. I had been training really effectively for a few weeks in a row. And then I just was being really stupid and I got very greedy on the squat. And so now my back is like wrecked, but it'll be, it'll be fine in like a few days, but it's just so annoying when you finally are getting, you're finally like through an injury and then you just cause another one from being stupid. You're like, God, why would I do that? Yeah. But, um, but no, the plan is probably for the next year or two to try to really put on some good size and then, uh, and then do a, a show. Actually, uh, Eric, uh, his Facebook is like Eric Lee Salazar. Um, so he just actually became an IFBB pro. Um, but he challenged me a few months ago. He said that we have to compete against each other um, in a few years. And I kept trying to like talk the timeline backward. And I was like, he was like, let's do it next year. I was like, absolutely not. But now that he's an IFBB pro, he's probably not allowed to compete against me. He'll probably lose his IFBB status. So I think but I got out of that. Is he, is he a, a, an IFBB pro bodybuilder or men's physique? Bodybuilding. What, yeah. Then would he not smoke, you know? Like, no offense, well, but if he's an IFBB pro bodybuilder, he's probably First like of all, that's a, it's extremely offensive, <laughs> and I resent the, uh, the implication. I think I'd hold my own against Flex Lewis and, uh, <laughs> you know, Roly, uh, Dexter Jackson. I'm coming for you. Yeah, it's Photoshop. But, it's all Photoshop. <laughs> no, so Eric uh, competes. Uh, he competes in the under under 150 pounds oh okay so he's probably tiny like really short uh he's basically my size so it's he's you know we're about the same height about the same weight um so basically like the the ideal human physique basically is how i would describe it i'm surprised Um, honestly that somebody i'm kidding by the way (laughs) (laughs) I'm, i'm surprised that somebody that size could become an IFB pro bodybuilder unless they were like four foot eleven, like just in terms of the mass that you need these days to be an IFB pro. But, but props to him. No, I mean, so his arms are stupid. If you if you look him up on Facebook, his arms don't make sense. I don't understand how a muscle belly would be shaped that way, but uh, I'm I'm happy for him. But uh, no, I think what happens is when you get down into the weight classes that are very restrictive, it's just like, uh, it's, it's kind of like how the, I think the, the powerlifting records between males and females, Greg knows this better than I do, but when you start getting down into the weight classes that are like below 140 pounds, uh, they start to become kind of similar. Um, just because like, there's not like a ton of, especially in like untested federations, there aren't like a ton of uh, males on steroids who weigh like 120, 130 pounds, you know? Gotcha. So I, I think it's because the weight class limit is fairly restrictive that you can actually be natural and and still attain that pro status. Um, but yeah, so I mean, Eric, if you look at his physique, it's insane. Yeah, I'm looking at it he's, now. Yeah, he's got yeah. insane. Uh, he's got insane insertions on his arms, and uh, his arms are wild. He's he's an awesome dude. I, I really like Eric. Super nice guy. Uh, I'm super happy for him, and I'm very happy that now that he's an IFBB pro, he'll probably have to lose his pro card to 
compete against me, which means I probably don't have to lose to him, which is cool. <laughs> oh, anyway, man, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Where can people find out more about you? I know that you recently joined um, Eric and Greg. At, so Eric Helms and Greg Knuckles um, and Mass. There's a monthly applications in uh, sport. Is it sports science or so- sports? What, what does Mass stand for again? It's uh, monthly applications and strength sport. Strength sports. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. a great resource. I've been a member of that for a while, quite a while. You also work as a coach for Stronger by Science. Yeah, yeah. So Mass. Um, it's it, you know it's me, Greg. Uh, Helms and Zordos, Mike Zordos, who's a professor at yep. uh, Florida Atlantic, really, really smart guy. Um, so yeah, you, you can find some of my work with Mass, which is a monthly uh, subscription uh, Research thing. review, yeah. Research review, yeah. Uh, you can find me at Stronger by Science, uh, which is uh, me and Greg run the show over there uh, with the help of Greg's wife, Lindsay, who is r- much better than us at anything that we do. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me on social media, um, Instagram's probably the plus the best place to do that. And my handle is at Trexler Fitness. Perfect. Well, again, thanks, Eric, so much for coming on. And I uh, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. So that was a really useful conversation for me. I found that very, very insightful. It's an area of nutrition that I'm really interested in. I think probably because... I'm in a contest prep at the moment and have been for quite a while that it's just something that I'm drawn towards but again it's something to kind of note that we can't just put our body weight into a calculator online and expect to see those exact results every single week and it comes back to the fact that our body tries to stay in homeostasis that it tries not to get too heavy or it tries not to get too lean and if we do actually want to push the boundaries either way we're going to have to you know sometimes dig a little bit whether that's adding more food when we struggle to eat more or whether that means that we're going to have to drop calories more than we actually think we will and suffer a little bit more but if you found this episode useful please do again leave a review or rating or any comments or feedback that you have on itunes or apple Podcasts. and again reach out to me on instagram or at my email and if you want to find out more about eric and look into some of his work i've left the links as well in all the descriptions of the show notes whether you're watching on youtube or you're listening on some form of podcast player but again i appreciate you listening this long if you have made it till the end and i hope you stay tuned for future episodes because i have many more interesting guests on that are lined up to talk to me thanks a lot guys for listening and i will chat to you in the next episode